0: How's it going? Yeah. Cool, cool. All right, so uh, first of all, I, um, Scroggins said I'm really godly, but uh, I really shouldn't be up here because um, if you're a preacher, you pray, right? You should be good at praying. Well, uh, it was about two weeks ago, Lindsay and I were about to sit down and have dinner, and this day, uh, it was not a busy day. I wasn't really exhausted from anything. I worked maybe four hours at Home Depot and didn't really do anything there either because we didn't have much to do. Um, but moral of the story, we sit down and, um, I like to start every prayer saying, Lord, I love you and we need you and so on and so on. But this particular night I decided to sit down and say, Lord, we love it. (laughs) And it made absolutely no sense, right? So we just laughed it off and then, uh, just ate and it was a good time. Um, moral of the story, pray more. (laughs) Um, so I'm going to pray now and then we'll get into things. All right. Lord, we love you and we need you, Father, and I pray that your spirit would come and rest in this place, Father, and penetrates our hearts and our souls and our minds, Father, so that we can take what we have, um, take what you have to speak to us, Father, and apply it to our lives. And in all these things we pray, amen. All right, so even though I am very aware that I'm not qualified to be up here, uh, I believe that God, when God calls you to do something, he's going to qualify you to do that thing. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, And we're going to be talking about the story of Gideon, uh, which is in Judges chapter 6. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have a physical Bible. Um, And funny enough, we're talking about the Israelites. I like how he sang the worship song Famous For, because I feel like God was pretty famous for digging the Israelites out of the dirt. Am I right? (laughs) Um, Anyway, so a little bit of context here. The Israelites at this time had been doing evil in the in the eyes of the Lord. That's what the Bible says. Um, and so God handed them over to the Midianites, and um, they came in, and they just wrecked shop, right? They came in, they tore up the ground and uh, destroyed all their crops. They stole all of their livestock, and they brought their own. And there were so many of them that the Bible says that the Israelites couldn't count the number of heads of the people coming in, nor the camels coming in, right? So that pushed the Israelites out of the town. And sent them into the mountainside and into caves, and so for some reason they decided to suffer in that for seven years before asking God for help, right? And so, they um, so finally they asked the Lord for help. Said, "Lord, help us. We need some help." And so God says, "Okay." And then He sends them a prophet, and the prophet tells the Israelites a bunch of stuff they didn't want to hear. So they kicked them out, and then they brought in, uh, and then they asked the Lord again. If uh, they could help him out. And so God said, okay, I'll do a different thing this time. So he sends an angel to Gideon. And that's where we're going to start, all right? In verse 11. It says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So from here, Gideon was super stressed out. He's like, gosh, why do I got to do this, man? And so we know that he was unqualified, right? And um, here's some reasons as to how he was unqualified. First of all, it was uh, out of his birth and skill set. So we know that he wasn't the ruler of his people and that his clan was the least in the town, and then on top of that, he was the least in the family. He wasn't the oldest of his brothers, so he wasn't even going to get any credit from that. He was also doubtful. If you continue reading and you read verses 17 to 22, Gideon needs a sign just to be able to be sure that the angel who you would think he'd know by the presence of God is an angel, right? So he builds an altar, and then he says, all right, if you're really who you say you are, then you'll throw fire down on this altar, and then The angel does, and he says, oh, okay, I guess I'll do this. (laughs) And then again, he needs more signs in verses 36 to 40 whenever the angel tells him to go and build build up an army to take down the Midianites. He needs two more signs for that, so he's very doubtful. He's also very prideful. In verse 27, when, uh, when the angel of the Lord told him to go and tear down some altars, and we'll get into that in a minute, he did it at night and not during the day so he wouldn't feel embarrassed or shamed or mocked in the middle of the day. He was also constantly referencing his social status. In chapter 7, verse 2, that's when he was starting to build his army, and then God anticipated that Gideon would boast of his accomplishments if they won. So he said, all right, let's bring your army back down from 32,000 to 300, and we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, And so like many of us, Gideon cared a little bit more about What people thought than what God thought, right? And just because we are unqualified for the call doesn't mean that we are disqualified from the call. And so we're going to look into what uh, his response was and what it looks like with obedience. All right, and so we're going to look at verses 25 to 26 in that same chapter. It says, that same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So we see here that the very first thing that the angel instructed Gideon to do is to go into the town and tear down the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole, right? And so from there, we can see that the first thing that we should be doing when we're going forward the call of God, is tearing down the idols in our lives, right? The idols in our lives are things that we deem more important or valuable than God himself, okay? And so if we think about our direction, right, if we're trying to work towards a character of God, right, as going towards him, if we think about that as a, you're on a train on the train tracks, right? And you think of idols being um, the tracks that turn your direction. The idols can be anything that turns your direction, and that's going to take you in a location that's not where God wants you to be. And so it's very important that we get rid of the idols first, because if we don't, then we'll be headed the wrong way, and the thing that we're trying to do isn't going to be accomplished. Right? And these idols can be many things. We've heard this a lot of times, but they could be things like power, Your financial stability uh, or success, social status, instant gratification even, um, and many other things. But for Israel, it were the gods of Baal and Ashtaroth, right? And Scroggins preached on this this a little bit too. So we remember that Baal is the god of power, and the pole is an idol for Ashtaroth, who is the goddess of fertility. And so we can see that the Israelites worship power in the first little bit that I read it said that uh, Gideon said that he was the weakest clan in Manasseh, right? So that obviously they worshiped power. If they didn't, he wouldn't be worried about being the weakest or the strongest or the fittest or the fastest, right? He wouldn't worry about it. And so God handed them over into the what their hearts desired. They handed them over into a people that were powerful, that were stronger than them, to, just to see what, so that they could see what they were saying that they wanted. If we continue to read... You see that the Midianites and the Malekites fled, but the trick is is that they didn't flee from Israel until after the altars were cut down, and then God's altar was built instead of it, right? Alexander McLaren says this, if any thorough deliverance from the misery which departure from God has wrought is to be effected, we must destroy the idols before we attack the spoilers. This leads us to the idea of the expulsive power of a greater affection, right? And so it's what happens when you, you have something and you see something else and you find it and you deem it more worthy than the thing that you already have. So you drop what you have to take on the new thing. However, a lot of times we come to church and we go to the altar and we leave something off. We have some sin in our lives and we say, Lord, have it, but we don't replace it with the greater thing. When you don't do that, that thing that you just gave up is going to creep right back into your heart, and you're going to have the same issue over and over again, right? So you don't want the same tear stains on the altar every week. Um, and so when, um, when that happens, God is doing work in you, right? And so we've all heard the phrase, what God wants to do in you, he wants to do through you. Well, sometimes what we don't think about is when God is doing that work through you, it can't be of your own effort or talent. Right. So when God's called you to a place to do a thing, if you try to do that thing while relying on your past experience and your knowledge, and not on the Holy Spirit, then the thing that God intru- the thing that God intended for you to do isn't going to be done how He expected it to be done. Right. So, for example, there's uh, a bulk of our staff uh, here at Kai Alpha it came from Sam Houston State, and so. Uh, If say we were to come here and not rely on the Holy Spirit and we were just to do everything that we knew from Sam Houston that we were raised up in that culture and everything and all the knowledge and experiences that we had, what would we have here? We wouldn't have a spirit-filled Chi Alpha at Angela State. We would have a replicated Sam Houston State Chi Alpha, right? And that's not what we want. That's not having a living and breathing Holy Spirit in your ministry. G. Campbell Morgan says the deliverer Gideon is seen as a man overwhelmingly conscious of the disastrous condition of affairs and yet as definitely conscious of the divine power. He knew that success did not depend on what he was, but on what God was. If you're to continue reading, uh, when you go home in chapter 7 and 8, you'll see that Gideon's army of 300 defeated the Midianites and Amalekites, but that was only because he relied and became obedient on the strength of the Lord. And so God did that work, so he's the rightful owner of the credit for the work, right? And so this is why God dwindles his army from 32,000 men to 300. If you don't know anything about me, I was a physics major at St. Houston. I'm not great at physics, but I really like math. (laughs) And so um, I did some number crunching on this a little bit, and 300 is only 0.94% of 32,000. So you think, D- dang, that's, that's, that's a big drop-off. We're like, really? But then you think about how big the army of the Midianites was. And in chapter 8, it says that they have 135,000 men. So you would think that 32,000 men wouldn't make a difference, right? Like 32,000 to 300, what's the, you know, obviously we can't win anyways with 32,000. But 32,000 of 135,000 is 22%. And if you look at 300 people to 135,000 people, that's a fifth of a single percent of that 135,000 army. So it's literally impossible for them to take them out. It's almost saying like, if I were to go onto a baseball field, I'm gonna step up there and I'm gonna have a a team of myself, me myself and I, and I'm facing off an entire baseball team, and you and expecting me to win. That would be saying I'm gonna step up to the to the mound and throw a 100% perfect game, right? Strike out to strike out to strike out, not to worry about fielding any balls or catching any for that matter. And then also getting up to the batter's box and hitting home runs out the wazoo cuz it doesn't matter. Even if I were to get on base, I would still need a second guy to hit me home. So that's what we're looking at here. These things are silly and are actually impossible, and so that's why God had to shrink the army down so small to see that there was no possibility whatsoever for Gideon and his people to take credit for the impossible. And so that's how um, God called Gideon, even though he was unqualified. So we're going to look at Apollos' life in Acts 18 and see how God qualifies him. We're going to start in uh, verse 24. It says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So here we see that Apollos is in Ephesus, and he's preaching to these people up to the baptism of John, and we can try to say that he was handicapped by not knowing the full gospel, right? So he wasn't totally fit for ministry because he didn't know everything, but God in his sovereignty sent Priscilla and Aquila to further equip him, right? And then he sent him to Corinth so he could preach there. Now, if you're anything like me, and you're thinking the way that I'm thinking, you would think, okay, so Apollos was in Ephesus, and he preached up to the baptism of John, and then he learned about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but then he didn't preach it to the Ephesians. They sent him off to Corinth. Well, what about the Ephesians? Are we leaving them out to drive for the Holy Spirit? Not quite. Let's read chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. It says, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So here we can see that God is sovereign, right? Here's a really cool thing. Paul was in Corinth at the time. Whenever he dropped off Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, he was on the way to Corinth. So Corinth. Uh, Paul was preaching at Corinth, and then Apollos was over here in Ephesus. And then when Apollos gained more information, they swapped places. And so God was forcing them to be humble, right? He was seeing if they were going to be humble or if they were going to be prideful, right? If Apollos said, no, these are my people. I want to preach to these people. I want to tell them about the Holy Spirit because I planted that seed. But no, he was humble, and he was willing to let that up and give that to Paul, as he went off to go to Corinth and then Paul had to be humble too and say oh I'm going to let this new guy preach to my people right so it's humility on both sides that's a freebie there so Apollos was preaching wasn't wrong he was just dealing with the cards he was dealt right and so from here we can see that with qualification comes responsibility Tell you a little bit from when I worked at Home Depot in Huntsville, I, um, I ended up doing a lot of things over there because I stayed there for a long time. But my biggest pet peeve almost immediately when I got there was when a customer would approach an employee and say, hey, I need help in electrical. And then the employee would say, oh, actually I work in like the garden section. I can't really help you out. But if you go over there, you might find someone on one of the seven aisles that's in the electrical department. Right? That was the big problem mine. I'm like, why can't you just help them, walk them to where they need to go or find somebody for them, call somebody, do something? So I then made it my agenda to go and learn how to work all the machines and all the departments, and, um, and that way I could help people. So when I went up to the paint desk, I was like, hey, teach me how to mix this paint real quick. And so they did, and then I was then held responsible to help customers and paint whenever they paged, hey, we need help in paint. Same thing when I was going on break as I was passing the lumber saws every time, or if I was going home or if I was in a rush or if I needed homework to do or trying to get to small group. I had to stop because I was responsible for doing those things. We are responsible for what we know. Gideon knew the relationship between his people and God and then God sent an angel to Gideon to tell him to redeem his people back into a state of surrender to God. So then he was then held responsible to do that. Apollos was preaching, and then he gained more information, so he was then more responsible than before, and he held himself accountable to it. God's going to keep calling you, and He's going to keep qualifying you, right? With whatever you're doing, He will keep calling you, and He will keep qualifying you. God will use your current quali- your current calling to qualify you for the next one right? So when I reflect on my life personally, I see, especially in my college years, I see that James Franklin, who is my small group leader, he was working with the Holy Spirit to qualify me for disciple-making through the leadership training class and small group leading myself. And then when I step into the next role of small group leader, I then realized that Jonathan Garza, who is my resource leader, was working with the Holy Spirit to qualify me for being able to share the gospel with in my future workplace and in my marriage. And now as I'm here, I'm realizing that the Scroggins family, our Chi Alpha staff, and my resource is working with the Holy Spirit to qualify me for ministry in even greater capacities. So we need each other, and we're responsible for what we know. Each of these people did their part in helping me, uh, helping qualify me for the next thing, but don't get me wrong, these people didn't help qualify me because they wanted to have a legacy wherever they were. They didn't want to be remembered for some next great thing or for some revival. The only reason that they did that was because they deemed God worthy of my worship. They wanted to see God glorified through my life. As we come to a close, worship team, you can go ahead and come on up here. i tell you something that my father always told me growing up. Um, he told me that if you ever want the next promotion, if you want the next raise, if you want the next title or whatever, then you should be doing that thing before you get the title right don't be sitting on your butt looking at everything else saying, "Oh, I wish I had that and not doing anything for it In his case, it was uh, he was ref- he would always refer to um, our church that I grew up in. Right, so for a time we had a worship leader and then we didn't. And then my father knew how to play keys and sing, and so um, he stepped in and he led worship for our church for a long time since we moved. And he didn't get referenced to as the worship leader or worship pastor until years after he had started doing that already. Now, don't get me wrong, that wasn't because he wanted to be the worship leader, he didn't want to be seen as that guy that's leading worship in all these places, he saw a need and he met it, just like Jesus did. I personally wish that I had taken my dad more seriously and applied it to my life in college. Because if I had, then maybe I would have applied this next question more seriously, or asked it to myself more often. This question is, will you, as a small group member, help lead a small group before you get that title? Will you deem people worthy? Will you deem God worthy of his people enough to do that without having the title of small group leader? Without being maybe invited to the resource meetings, which honestly are just as good as your small group meetings, right? If you let it be. You small group leaders, will you ask your resource leader what burdens you can take off of their shoulders so that you can make their lives easier? and before they come to you and ask you to take it off of their shoulders? How can we help our friends? Those that make up God's kingdom are the very means that he uses to build it. So we are responsible for the qualification that God gives us to reach the lost on the campus. And eventually, hopefully the whole world, depending on what we do and how we apply with it we read books from old dead guys and we spend time listening to podcasts and sermons and audiobooks, and we listen to all these things and we take in all this information and then we never apply it to our lives and we never walk in it then God will judge us based on our knowledge and the lack of wisdom right so we're responsible for what we know Jesus commands us to be perfect as he is perfect And that will only come if we become responsible for what we know. And we ask two questions. Why do we do the things that we do? And who do we do them for? This semester, uh, we've been expressing to our Kyle here that what we want to do, and what we believe that God wants to do here, is build a new house on a new foundation that is built on the trust and the truth of God, right? And so that's why we've preached on things like lordship and genuine friendship and what salvation is and what repentance is and all these things, is so that we could build that house. So what I'm saying tonight is that the house is framed, the foundation is set, the walls are put up, the roof is on the house, and it's ready. And what it needs is decorations. And these decorations just so happen to be us, Right? It's God's creation. It's who He created. It's who He wanted communion with. So here in a second, we're going to take a minute and just, we're just going to pray and contemplate and think and listen to the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And um, we're going to see and think about what God has asked us to do and what to walk through and the faith that He will qualify and equip us with the means to do it. And i would also like for us to take a moment to see if we're ready to walk into that house if we haven't already he's inviting you in the doors wide open you don't even need to ring the doorbell or knock you just got to walk in and if there's something stopping you then ask the lord what it is i've been there before i've been in a place just recently this past couple months actually i've I had a devotional life and I felt like the Lord wasn't moving in my life. It felt stagnant. I felt like there was no emotional pull towards the Lord. And it's the first time it's ever happened in my life since I've been saved. And I just stuck through it and I said, Lord, what, like, what is it? And He just told me I was trying too hard. So we should have to let go and see what God wants to do with our lives stop thinking so much and start listening. I'll give you this and then we'll pray and then we'll have some time for reflection. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires.